This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. I wish I could be optimistic. And Dr. Kavita Patel. All right, here's a good one. Here's a, here's a heated one. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. This is a special week. Norm Ornstein and I are doing a holiday edition. And no matter what your holiday, even if it's just celebrating the recent World Cup victory, which I have been doing, Norm, in my household because we're big Lionel Messi fans, or you're getting ready for any number of holiday gatherings, we wanted to do a very special edition to not only thank our listeners, but take a little bit of a year's end reflection and answer some questions from our loyal listeners and also in our members only section, a little sneak preview for those of you that want to get that holiday gift of joining in as a member now. We're going to go through some personal questions that viewers asked. And Norm, I can't be more excited. We asked and people responded. We got some really, really juicy questions. But Norm, first, tell me, I can't help but ask, did you watch the World Cup? I feel like if you if you have to say yes, then you I have watched to it. I, yeah. <laughs> give I, me I, your I, thoughts and reactions. <laughs> it was absolutely dramatic and stunning. And watching afterwards, I saw the video of the Argentine announcer saying we're world champions. The emotional level was amazing. And then watching the crowds in Argentina. Although I have to say, Kavita, you know, as as we watched the match and they were talking about some of the fans who had spent their life savings to go to be there in person, I thought, I'm a big sports fan. But that may be taking it a little bit too far. And what if you spent your life savings to travel halfway across the world and then your team loses? So I, I will say this, and, and, and this is a very good reflection of probably who you and I are. I was thinking the same thing. But on top of that, I'll double down on that thought. I thought Argentina is at what, like 120% inflation? Like, is this really the best thing to be doing with your cash right now? It, you know, putting it towards a towards the Qatari economy, which really doesn't need any of your money at this point in time. But I thought uh, I thought the same. But I will say that it really felt, I would have said initially for 90 minutes, but uh, all in all, it was 133 and a half minutes because I was counting because that's how long I was at the edge of my seat. 133 minutes of what I would say was the world literally holding their breath, which even if you hate soccer, you could not help and you have to agree and I've been watching soccer loyally for like decades. I, I, I will say that was probably the best game. And I think the uh, goalkeeper for Argentina, who was the superstar, Martinez, Emmy Martinez, and he said it best. He's like, we had to suffer. Like to get here, we had to suffer. <laughs> and I thought, well, not only did you have to suffer, the whole country, like the world had to suffer. And when would you say that you would see this like 23-year-old, 24-year-old breakout, you know, black French player who emerged as literally, literally saving the French team. And then an Argentinian, someone who at the age of, was diagnosed with growth hormone deficiency, Lionel Messi, at like the age of nine or 10, and was fated to have this incredibly difficult childhood when the team in Barcelona, the Barcelona soccer team, told his mother that they pick up his medical costs thus enticing him to come to Barcelona at the age of 13 and to be there kind of basically ever since, but always loyal to Argentina. So like, you know, you can't like, that's like such a 2022 kind of modern, even though it took several decades in the making, like such a modern story that I think was just great to 
for a moment, all felt all felt right in the world <laughs> to have that to have that 133 minutes. So with that's that was a, it's a great way to kick us off, Norm. We have so we have so many questions. We're going to do what is hard for me to do, which is rapid fire. But let's start. And I'll be the I'll be the MC since we've got so many great questions. Let me start here. I'll, I'll do I'll do something that I can take as a as a short one and and see what your response is. All right, how should the how should the government handle the triple demic? So here's I'm just going to give three short answers. Number one, government, including Congress, with the government needs to fund. We've talked about this before. They need to fund in short order ten billion dollars so that we can at least have funded treatments and vaccines and testing that is not commoditizing, taking away, cannibalizing from other commodities to pay for it. Number two, we absolutely have to acknowledge that the public health infrastructure that we always said is broken is still broken. And not only do we have to devote infrastructure, literally electronic infrastructure, connecting electronic records across the country, but also the world so that we can have a better surveillance system not just for these three viruses, which have caused us incredible havoc, but for future potential viruses. And then the third, which is going to seem slightly unusual, is to reinvigorate the conversation on vaccines and to take responsibility for what we did in poor messaging and what we had to tackle in terms of disinformation. Because even if it's not these three viruses, we're losing the battle on getting people educated and understanding like the value of vaccines. And Norm, the pace of science for which we're coming up with cures and treatments and vaccines for things like HIV, I worry that even if we come through with all this miraculous science, nobody will be on the other end to take it. Norm, what's your take on that question? I have a couple of points to amplify what you said, Kavita, all of which is spot on. Just watching China which had this draconian shutdown process, which eroded a lot of support in the country, but then opened up and now is facing horrific problems. They're facing horrific problems in part because they did not vaccinate people, including their older population. And the Omicron variant is causing this enormous spread. They don't have the medicines. Their health care infrastructure is terrible. And What it told me is, first, we know that masks work to help reduce the spread and to make infections less fatal. We know that vaccination works. And then watching Ron DeSantis pivot now to attack vaccines and go after all of the people the scientists, the healthcare providers, and others who supported vaccination. It's a complete turnaround for him. But one of the things that I tweeted about this is there's one thing that DeSantis and Trump have in common, a wanton disregard for human life to support their own ambitions. And it just underscores what you said about trying to recapture the narrative on vaccination. We still have a significant share of the population unvaccinated. And we know that the anti-vax movement is now starting to really spread towards all vaccines for children. And what I think is absolutely unconscionable, Congress putting into the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, that recruits into the military do not have to be vaccinated anymore. This is a catastrophe for national security 
And we need a reversal in a lot of ways in this issue. Absolutely. And we can go on and on. Maybe we'll take some time talking about vaccine mandates in the new year. I'm just making a note for topics yeah. because you're, you're right. And there's a heavy debate about whether being infected before, quote unquote, um, immunity by natural infection could qualify. And there's reasons that's a bad idea too. So, all right, next question, rapid fire. Is the best solution for keeping the country together more federalism? And the answer is emphatically no. Okay, we have federalism now when it comes to abortion. And what has that meant? It has meant that we have states that look more like Iran than like what we expect in a country that is united. And we cannot tolerate that anymore. We cannot have states that are vaccine deniers. People can move, of course, across state lines. But the idea that a 10-year-old girl who is pregnant after having been raped cannot get an abortion in her own state and has to move to another state, that tells me that federalism is not a great idea. And when we see voter suppression, racist actions, and the like, we need to find a way to unify the country, which is the opposite of federalism right now. It is trying to create national standards that are moral and sane. I'll also just add on, I, not a shock, I completely agree. But I think where maybe the questioner has some valid like consideration is that are there situations where acknowledging how states are different can be held, can actually be a utility or be useful and nothing short of where we're seeing the kind of extreme water shortages and our lack of what is projected for basically most of the entire Western United States with a dependency on kind of the Colorado Reservoir and projected water shortages that could put us not just back into the time I remember in California, where if you went to a restaurant, they didn't serve drinking water unless you asked for it because there was such a water shortage. But this that would be a good case scenario. I think that it is very important for every state to take responsibility to somewhat to acknowledge that whether you call it federalism, everybody has to actually have some meaningful contribution into some of these common goods. And how a state decides to do that, if California decides they want to do a tax and this is how they want to fund some of these efforts, some others want to deal with climate change in different ways, all of those things to me are fine, but everybody needs to have some way to add to what, again, I would call these common goods. And by the way, that adds, that's the same that goes for research infrastructure, some of the public health infrastructure. So these are not separate solutions. So not federalism in the way you describe the kind of disaster scenario that has occurred in reproductive rights. But we cannot, we can no longer kind of depend on like a small set of regional or even kind of states that had by bizarre historical standards been responsible for certain things and then somehow decide that that's exactly, that that, that will be the norm for the rest of, for the rest of the country. All right, here's a good one. Here's a here's a heated one. What policy issues do you two disagree on? I, I don't know if we've had might be the Supreme Court. Norm, you you have so maybe for background for listeners, Norm, you have been pretty public in your kind of thinking around term limits and size of the Supreme Court. And I have been, I'll be honest, I think you've you've turned my thinking a little bit, but I will say the one thing that I feel pretty confident is is term limits. 
I have gone back and forth about whether the size of the Supreme Court would actually be a fix. Norm, what's your what's your current thinking? I am all for enlarging the court. I hate it when people call it packing the court. Yeah. <laughs> the court was packed by Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. But it's not just because I think it's restoring what should have been when the norms were completely shattered with Merrick Garland, with Brett Kavanaugh, and then I think even more with Amy Coney Barrett. It's also that the court has changed in size over the course of history. It was set at nine because at the time we had nine circuit courts. We now have 13. This is outside the D.C. circuit. So setting the court size at 13 makes a lot of sense to me. And the idea that, well, if you do it at uh, 13 now, when they get back in power, they'll make it 15 or 17. I'm willing to take that chance because what I see now with this court is not just that it is has been tilted by all of the norms shattered by McConnell, Trump, et al., but also you have a court now, and it's really the Alito court, that is arrogant, and it's basically, we're going to do whatever we want because we have the votes. And where it really turned me, as much as anything, even before the Dobbs decision on abortion, there was a decision involving voting rights called Brnovich. And there, the language in the statute was crystal clear. It was not vague at all. And basically, six justices, including Roberts, said, this is the goal we want. We want to blow up the rest of the Voting Rights Act, and we're going to rewrite that statute the way we want to. And that is over the line for me. Something has to change. And to me, it should be enlarging the court. I understand all of the challenge that comes with that. And of course, Right now, it's theoretical. It's not going to happen. But that's where I would come up. I respect that. And you've probably, over time, kind of changed my thinking where I had started and still feel maybe it's because I have such little faith in, in politics and elections, which will get us to our next question. But uh, I, I'm very concerned that this would just continue to be like this game of tit for tat. So one party would expand, the next election, the other party would slim it back. And then just on like a, you know, I've only been to the Supreme Court gallery twice, which is more than most people. But I mean, could you imagine just the cost of reconfiguring the courtroom bench every so many years? I mean, that alone, that's a funny, that's more meant to be a toss away. But I, I do, I agree. I see, I see your point, but that's probably a good meaty policy issue, which we disagree with, but at the base of it have the same, same policy desire that we don't want to see these courts co-opted like they have been as of late. All right. So the next next question. So this is a, a, another good one on a fixer. Norm, if you could fix one problem in the government at the sweep of your hand, what would you do? I'm going to answer that. And I know that we're using the word government a little bit loosely because I'm using a much broader term, but it's to end the filibuster. I mean, that alone, I think, single-handedly would do so much to actually get us to better policy. I cannot emphasize that enough. So that's my one fix. You can copy it if you want, because that's actually something you've written about more than I have. But what's your one fix? I agree with you, although keep in mind that if they did that now, it wouldn't have any practical effect as long as there's a Republican House. But for the long term, you're right. Now, having said that, and having already gotten past the 
big fix of the Supreme Court, which would be an important one. If I could do one thing, it would be to turn the Senate into the House of Lords. I would take away much of the power of the Senate. Um, don't make it a body that has the ability to alter laws, at least not in the way that it can right now. Now, why do I say that? And it's not just because the filibuster makes it so difficult to act on anything. I'll come back to something that I've said before, but would reinforce. We're almost at a point where 70% of Americans live in 15 of our 50 states. That means we're heading very soon to a place where 30% of Americans will elect 70 senators, and they are not representative of the diversity of the country or the economic dynamism of the country. And it's going to be a crisis in legitimacy. And it's not easy to deal with otherwise beyond somehow challenging the power of the Senate. Now, that ought to be accompanied. It's, you know, we asked for one thing, but it ought to be accompanied by making sure that this outrageous partisan and racial gerrymandering in the House is brought to a minimum so that the House actually becomes a representative body for the country. But even if we didn't do that, I'd still want to take away this veto power that this very unrepresentative Senate has. That's a good one. And uh, I was just having this image of uh, watching Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell in wigs. And something, something about that gave me pleasure for this holiday season. <laughs> so that's a bonus if we could do a House of Lords edition on, on top of, of current, current legislation. That would be great. All right. Next question. How should we go about the task of de-radicalizing the Republican Party and our friends and family that might have gone over the edge during COVID? I'll start with this one because I actually have quite a few friends and family that have, they didn't go over the edge. They were just always pretty MAGA supportive. I'm surrounded by people who disagree with anything that has the word Biden inside of it. And that has created a lot of friction at family dynamics and friends gatherings. I find that for me, I'll take this on a very micro level task. And then maybe Norm, you can talk about kind of the macro level if you if you wish. But at a micro level, I think both sides, both the radicalized Republicans, and then what I would say are kind of the staunch liberals, myself included, that somewhere we are going to have to find not I won't even say common ground, because if I say common ground, I hold the line when I say vaccines save lives, and they won't even listen to it. So I think that we have to start to have kind of what I had to do when I worked for Ted Kennedy and I had to sit down and work with people like Sam Brownback on legislation that we actually found the areas that people seem to all agree upon, which is, for example, job preservation for families, people who all said that they wanted to promote, people love the idea in the conservative party about vouchers for education because they felt like that that was something that was the right of, of persons. And it was a way to wedge in as um, a liberal lawmaker. And Ted Kennedy would talk about, so what education reforms do we need so that if we disagree on vouchers, we can talk about current state of education for the United States, et cetera. But I, I think it starts local. And I've gone out of my way to, re when during the pandemic, I avoided conversations with my radical Republican friends. I have actually gone out of my way to kind of rekindle those relationships, but as people, not on issues, not on talking points on TV. And it's, it's the only way I think we're going to go about this task. And then I also have 
held my ground and said, I completely disagree with this. And I think that this is why when you say something is pro-life, you're actually ironically hurting the lives of women and then go into those examples in more detail. And it's the only, it's one-on-one. It's kind of like guerrilla, you know, one-on-one tackle that I can try to de-radicalize, but I'm not crazy. They're not changing me in terms of my politics. I'm not changing them, but I'd like for them to accommodate a little bit more of my thinking. But I've struggled with this one. Norm, what's, what's your opinion? I wish I could be optimistic and even offer a, a roadmap. But we know from a slew of studies that once people develop uh, a, a belief in certain facts, even if they are not facts, that it changing them, even if you have incontrovertible evidence to the contrary, becomes extraordinarily difficult. The brain synapses work in a way to try and protect what become deep-seated beliefs. So I think we're quite a ways away. Now, I do believe that if we could get some structural changes in the process to make government more representative, it would be a first step to begin to create some of those changes, but it's not going to be effective. And, you know, when I see what we have on tribal media, what we are getting on social media, what we're seeing now with Elon Musk and Twitter, what we've seen with Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and the like, they've got an audience. Now, that audience itself may not be enormous, but it's becoming amplified by what people do with their friends and relatives. So I just don't know how we're going to get past this in the short run, at least. I have some friends, too, who are MAGA. It's very tough, as you know, to deal with all of this. I have a friend from graduate school who was, you know, basically considered to be the smartest person in our graduate school class at the University of Michigan. And I basically, what we've done is we just don't talk about that stuff. We talk about personal things or we talk about sports. And you can maintain relationships that way, but it doesn't mean you're in a meaningful dialogue to be able to find that common ground. And it's once you start down that path, you end up torching your relationships. But my hope is that by talking about sports, talking about mutual loved ones, or, you know, even if it's small talk around holiday time or, you know, catching up at a reunion, my hope is that then when we are on opposite sides of picket lines or when I'm at a march for reproductive justice and someone takes a picture and then, you know, points a smear campaign against, you know, me and my family personally, my hope is that that that, that, that becomes something that they take a pause on and that they reconsider because we're human. So, yeah, I'm not Pollyanna. I agree. I think our country getting more divided than ever. But when someone, when a listener asks about de-radicalizing, I think it really is just one conversation at a time. And that's a lot of hard work that most of us don't have the time for. And frankly, the appetite for it's not the, it's not the kind of thing you want to do in your spare time. And I, and I get it. All right. So then let's talk about the democratic party. One listener asked, how do you think about the divisions within the democratic party? For example, if we had a contested primary in 2024, what policy issues would the candidates be arguing about? Norm, I'm going to let you start. I'm curious uh, your answer to this one. I've got my own thoughts. 
So there's no question that there are a lot of divisions there, but it's not, they're not as deep and wide as one might imagine, even from the rhetoric. But I think it's pretty clear that the policy divisions that we would see are very similar to the fault lines that we saw leading up to 2020. Some of them are over health care, single-payer system, a robust public option. Uh, how far do we go? Some of it has to do not with the fundamental values, but how sweeping and quick you want change. We would also see, I have no doubt, differences about the border, just as we had in 2020. How much do you crack down on people coming in who are asylum seekers? How far do you go in terms of promoting uh, immigration reform? And my guess is we would see some differences begin to emerge over foreign policy, again, traditional things. How much does America project itself abroad? What I fear in 2024, if it's still going on, is a significant division over aid to Ukraine and how much we take on Russia. So those things would be there. But the fact is, when people talk about the divisions in the Democratic Party, the sort of ultra-leftist wing is still a pretty small element of the party. And it's more about tactics than it is about policy goals. So I was going to answer it in an even more cynical way, which is uh, what policy issues are candidates arguing about now? Even if we didn't have a contested primary, I don't hear enough when I say policy issues. I mean, talking through like the real nuts and bolts right now, what you hear are just a series of bizarre kind of sound bites that most people don't even really understand because they're playing some sort of beltway game to try to throw lobs at each other. So I completely think the conversation we just had about Republicans and Democrats and kind of this notion of like, you know, more and more radicalization and the spectrum, I think the same applies within the Democratic Party. I mean, you when when people talk about the squad or AOC and the progressives and Bernie Sanders and and if you are not, you know, for Medicare for all, then you must be on the side of corporate, you know, a shill for corporate industry. I I mean, we're doing nothing to help actual people. And so I do think the divisions within the Democratic Party reflect in some way a lack of touch with reality of, of who are Democrats, who, who are the very people voting with the Democratic Party. My glimmer of hope, however, has been the literally this kind of foot, you know, foot army of incredible newly elected people at all levels, including some of the top, you know, R Reverend Raphael Warnock and some other recently kind of national political figures, because I think they are reflections, to your point, Norm, of the composition of the Senate, for example. We're seeing people that actually look and feel like the communities which voted them into power. And the more we can do that, the less that we will have these divisions and that we will have practical lawmakers who really come to do their job. As my old boss, Ted Kennedy, used to say, Nobody put me into office so that I could just attend chicken dinners. He's like, we have a job to do. And every day we have to do that job. I do think that this recent spate of lawmakers propelled forward by the efforts of Stacey Abrams and, and other activists around the country actually reflect that. So I have actually more hope that our divisions can narrow if we continue that, that streak. 
but I think a contested primary in 24 would not be one on debates around policy issues. It'll be a lot more of the same. So, all right, we're in the home stretch here, which is very good. We've got a couple more questions. Uh, let's end with one that's slightly personal to segue into the members only section, but Christopher Ray, maybe we can expand this. We have a listener who asks, what's the deal with Christopher Ray? Good guy, competent, making progress. What's the morale level at the FBI, et cetera? Maybe we can expand this to Christopher Ray and kind of what's happening at the Federal Bureau of Investigations. So I'll take a grassroots approach. I have several colleagues, career folks at the FBI who have now spanned four administrations. So these are people who, as, as you and I know, Washington, D.C. gets a lot of fanfare for who ends up you know, on MSNBC and on TV, but the real bulk of the work is done by career folks that nobody knows their names. Very few people get attention and they last as they call it. They're out there. They're there when the lights go out from the previous politicals. They're there when the lights go on with the next politicals. And people have pretty good things to say about him. Just they, they, they will say to me in private conversations that, is he the best they've seen? No. Is he an improvement, not just from the last administration, but over several administrations? He's pretty, he's pretty good. And what his strength, which is very hard to see on the surface, is that he's a decent manager and that he actually has like kind of an organized principle of managing staff. And at a place like the FBI, where the morale was probably at a record low during and at the end of the Trump administration, going into the Biden administration, he is doing, I think, a yeoman's job of trying to rise and raise that level of morale, kind of just morale, desire to come to work. Interestingly enough, the FBI has been one of the agencies, not majority of the agency, but a bulk of them never really, they, they, the work that they do with the security they deal with is such that they can't be remote. So these are people who have been coming in, so to speak, every day, have had no effect from the pandemic, kind of isolating them from their teams. But people have said that this is an incredibly, that, that Ray and I guess the team under Ray especially has put a lot of attention to team building. So that is, I think, just a statement. What, Norm, any thoughts, anything you've heard? I would agree with all that. And I think he is an improvement over Jim Comey. Comey was far too interested in making sure that everybody in the FBI liked him and ended up being intimidated by some bad actors. The overwhelming majority, I think, of FBI agents are exemplary figures, and you're exactly right. They work very hard to do the right thing. They've had a lot of work cut out for them of late. But we know, for example, that back in 2016, that Rudy Giuliani said it directly. He was in contact illegally with many people in the New York FBI who were wholly hostile to Hillary Clinton. And very, very likely they manipulated the laptop of Anthony Weiner to create this crisis right before the election with the emails on Weiner's laptop that Comey, the weak Comey, opened up publicly and probably had as much to do with Clinton's loss as anything else. So that's one side of it. Now, Ray is an improvement, but I would offer a big caveat. The FBI was brought into the Brett Kavanaugh investigation, brought in because of a bipartisan move by two on the Senate Judiciary Committee who saw a lot of problems and potential crack up in the Senate. And that was Jeff Flake and Chris Coons. And they 
got the FBI to say that they would go out and interview all kinds of witnesses and deal with all of these tips that had come in about other actions that Kavanaugh had taken that would make him unsuitable for the court. What we know is that they didn't even follow most of those leads, that there were some people with real credibility, Max Steyer, the head of the Partnership for Public Service, who had witnessed bad behavior by Kavanaugh, who said, I should talk to you about this. They wouldn't even talk to him. Ray presided over that. It was a massive cover-up, I'm sure designed to fend off Donald Trump from uh, criticism and maybe even from firing him. But that tells you that we've still got issues with uh, Chris Ray. Yeah, that's a fact. And and those issues, I, I suspect, also kind of friends who are in the national and even international security circles have all said the same thing to me over the months. You know, Chris Ray, the only reason Chris Ray is still here is because there are so many other things that this administration is dealing with that he's doing a decent job not breaking anything, but certainly not necessarily improving things for the Biden administration, which is an interesting phrase to put it. And by the way, they say that about several other kind of higher level officials in, in the administration. So if you if you get past, um, if like the economy kind of continues to slowly improve and Biden can get through potentially another reelect or whatever the future is for this administration, then you could imagine a change in leadership and that that wouldn't shock. I don't think it would shock you or me. All right. Last question. Anybody on the conservative side that you would suggest we read or listen to? Uh, and I'll tell you, this is not a, it's a blanket suggestion, as shocking as it might be. I actually frequently, usually on the radio, because I can't stand the imagery, I will driving do two, one of two things, listen to Charlie Kirk's podcast, just for the sake of um, stomaching and trying to understand what people are talking about, or Joe Rogan. Um, and I do it, oh, by the way, just to make people feel better um, at like a 2.5x speed or something like that. So that a 30 minute podcast, I can listen to an eight minutes. But then I also do flip when I'm home. And when I do watch television, I will flip to Fox News for, usually for like no more than a three to five minute burst, because then I have to throw something at the television and I don't want to break it. My family frowns on breaking electronics on purpose. So I I have less kind of been loyal to any certain person, but I've found myself that it's, it's useful to kind of stay in the mix and maybe helpful to also say that I do follow some conservative, I guess, people who have traditionally conservative viewpoints. And one Substack I subscribe to that fits in this, it's written by Barry Weiss, who I think we could argue is, I don't know how you would label her norm, but it's been fascinating to watch her once she was kind of, you know, ousted from the times for some of her opinions and for her writing. And how she has turned herself into a multi-million dollar and multi-million subscriber based, I think it's something called the American Free Press now or something to that effect, but it was written Common Sense with Barry Weiss. Those are the things I do. Norm, your, anything you do. Yeah. Well, first, let me say, I'm not a fan of Barry Weiss. I'm not a fan of any of these people. Yeah. <laughs> but in, including, of course, taking what I assume is big bucks from Elon Musk to do this farcical investigation of Twitter's past. Uh, she may not be as bad as Matt Tybee, but she's not somebody I would want to pay attention to. I understand, but I, I applaud you for dipping into this just to see what they're thinking and saying. The conservatives that I tend to pay more attention to are never Trumpers, and they're very conservative. Follow Bill Kristol on Twitter. 
and follow what Joe Walsh says. Joe Walsh was a a real trumper when he was in Congress, a pretty awful guy. He is still extremely conservative, but he has woken up to the awful nature of where the Republican Party has gone. But he still has all kinds of ties to Trumpist right-wing Republicans. And he has interesting things to say. And then the other thing that I do pay attention to is the bulwark. It's Charlie Sykes and uh, Crystal writes for them. It's Tim Miller. People who are conservative but have rebelled against where the Republican Party has gone. And I say often, Kavita, that if we got back a genuine political party, not a cult, it would be a very, very conservative party holding policy views that you and I would view as anathema. But if it's a party that has respect for institutions, respect for norms, and understanding that there are big problems that the country faces at home and abroad, and we have to try to find some common ground or some way to respond to those problems, I would be thrilled if that's what we had. So it's the people who might, at some point down the road, create that and move it away from the cult that I pay attention to. I love it. I, I think those are great people to follow and, and great words to, to end on. So thank you so much, Norm. This was fun. Maybe we have to do this more than just during the holiday times. This is kind of a great set of topics for us to talk about. So I want to thank our listeners. And, and uh, as a reminder, as we're continuing to improve the show, make sure you rate, review, subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player. Hope you can share this particular episode with your friends on social media. And if you like this one and want more, become a member. Remember, year-end holiday gift, last minute looking for stuffing stuckers. Stuffing stuckers? Wow. Stuffing stuff. Well, that is a that is a statement, isn't it? Looking for looking looking for something to put in your friend's inbox. The the membership to DSR Network is less than a pumpkin spice latte per month. And we'll definitely have leave you feeling even more healthy. So Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network. Our executive producer is the incredible Grant Haver. The executive producer of the DSR Network is Chris Cottmore. And our next episode will be in your podcast feeds on January 5th. See you then. <laughs>